Welcome to Lessons from the World's Best with me, Paddy Upton. Today's guest is Ryan Stramrod, who is an extreme ocean swimmer, both from a distance perspective as well as swimming in extreme cold. What makes his story so compelling is that he started out as an unfit, overweight average Joe at the age of 29. As the pounds of sedentary life piled on, friends pushed him to join their swim school and later to join them on the 7.2 kilometer Bloberg to Robben Island swim in the cold Cape Town waters. This was the start of Ryan's journey, to explore some of the world's wild and cold oceans wearing only a speedo, swimming cap and goggles. He also began to explore how our minds seem so insistent on seeking safety, comfort and security over difficulty. With each new challenge, he noticed his mind sought every reason to not take the challenge or to get into the safety of the boat when the going got cold, tough or rough. This 29-year-old average Joe has gone on to date to swim that 7.2-kilometer Robben Island crossing a record 122 times. He set a Guinness World Record for the 32-kilometer crossing of False Bay in Cape Town, which also boasts the largest great white shark feeding and breeding ground in the world. He swam without protection, some of it in pitch darkness, and included having to swim through a field of blue bottles, which stung him from head to toe. He discusses these and other amazing swims, including defying some of what science suggests is possible by taking 32 minutes to swim one mile in minus one degree Celsius or below freezing ocean water. Ryan shares how he learned to combat his naturally occurring negative thoughts and self-imposed limitations and how he trained himself and his mind to accomplish these feats. He is not a highly talented swimmer and was not born with any special physical or mental talents compared to other average Joes. He just found his way, which is available to all of us in whatever our pursuits are or might be in the future, to push past impossible. Please enjoy this episode of Lessons from the World's Best with today's guest, extreme adventurer and ice swimmer, Ryan Stramrod. Cool, Ryan, so awesome to to be sitting here in the lounge with you in person. Uh, Welcome to the show. Paddy, it's fantastic to be on your couch with you, man. Really cool, thanks for the invite. Yeah, I look forward to the conversation. So you've done some really cool and amazing things. You've faced a lot of challenges, you've learned a lot of lessons, you spend a lot of time now, you've written a book about them, you share them on stage as a speaker. We're gonna unpack all of that. Um, as we go. But the big thing, how did, when did this all start? How did this start? At what point did you lie in your bed as a young man thinking, I want to be an Olympic swimmer or an extreme swimmer? Where did the dream start? Uh, Paddy, you know what? And I think this is quite a fundamental part to my story and what I share with audiences is that none of this started for me um, until I was basically 30 years old, about 20, 29, 30 years old. So before that, um, you know, I was complete underachiever, enjoying life, you know, getting by, I enjoyed a few water sports and things, but I wasn't a big sportsman, any stretch of the imagination. Um, kind of doing my own thing and then getting stuck into business, running my advertising business and uh, eventually realizing that I'm getting really fat and lazy and, you know, because you get stuck into the corporate world and there's lots of snacks that you eat along, you know, <laughs> canapé parties and I was loving the TV remote and it was a lot easier just to sit on the couch than do anything. Until I took a client away, a guy called Grant Fraser, uh, on an incentive weekend down to my house on the Breda River. And over a beer, I was just telling him that, you know, I'm starting to put on the pounds. 
And he said, well, hey, why don't you just join my little swimming squad? Um, you know, you did it at Western Province School down in Cape Town. Um, and I, I almost felt coerced because a client has now invited me and I'll see you there Monday morning. And I, I just said, okay, and off, off I went. And um, joined this little swimming squad and really got a nice kick in the pants from day one, you know, because I don't know if anyone who's done any kind of squad before, usually the lanes are divided into the slow lane on the side and then the slightly faster lane and the medium lane and then the maybe like right up to the very fast lane. And of course, now you've got to arrive and decide where you put yourself. And, and uh, I had to put myself in the very fast lane because it didn't look that hard until I got in and four lengths and realized I was in deep, deep trouble to try and keep up with everybody. Um, so it was a very rude awakening. I managed about 20 lengths, which is half a kilometer. And uh, felt like I needed to vomit afterwards, to be honest. But something made me go back and uh, quite enjoyed the experience uh, and, and, the, and it really pushed me outside my comfort zone. Um, and that pays probably, if, if I had to pinpoint the very start of it, and that was probably at the age of 29, uh, the first time that I've ever gone into something properly sporty and decided I'm going to try and stick with it. <clears throat> and I can go on a little bit because when I went back, you know, you slowly you start to build your fitness. I dropped down a few lanes down to the medium lane, you know. You realize you've got to be mature about this and work your way up, but that's a great incentive for me. I don't want to be in the medium lane, I want to be in the in the fast lane, so I started to, to push a little bit and you know, start to do it a little more regularly. And then you meet someone in the swimming squad who um, had swum from Robben Island. Now in those days, when you did the Robben Island swim, it kind of made headline news. You were in the newspaper, there were photographs of you. And I'd been watching this through my life, these, these uh, amazing people who do swims as far as that in that cold water. And I remember just being a little bit awe of, of being in the same squad as, as uh, one or two guys who'd swum Robben Island. And, uh, you know, what, weeks, months went past until you start to pluck up the courage to have a conversation with these guys and like, show me, like, tell, tell me a little bit about it. Like, what's it like being out there in the middle of the ocean, looking down in that deep sea and the cold and how do you do it? And, um, you know, you start that conversation and before you know it, they're saying, well, hey, come on, Ryan, set it as a goal. You can do it. And I'm, it was such a pivotal thing for me because I remember absolutely laughing inside going, I don't want to look like a fool, so I kind of nodded and got in my car and drove away going, how ridiculous is that? Um, I mean, that's reserved for the super athlete. That's reserved for other people, not me. I'm, I'm you know, just eking out a, a 3K swim squad at that stage. And uh, yeah, eventually you know, they convinced me to set it as a goal. You become buddies with them. You meet more people who've done it. And uh, I set it as a challenge. And at the age of 30 years old, I made a go at my very first Robben Island wearing only a Speedo-type costume, goggles and a cap. And I swam to the beach and made it. And it turned a corner for me in, in how I thought about myself and what is possible and how I doubted myself before. And a whole lot of little epiphanies happened you know, on, a, on a personal level. So that's a very long answer to where this all started. Uh, sure. I mean, there's so many questions that come up. But the thing that before then, were you someone who, were you a goal setter? Did you believe before that? Did you believe in this idea of you've got to set goals and pursue them? Did you do that not, in business? Not at all. Uh, listen, in, in business, yes. Um, if I'm totally honest, not for myself, I never like, oh, I'm going to try and hit this big number because I'm an advertising sales business and the clients I work for hit the, set the number for you. You know, if, if you want to keep our business, you've got to bring X amount of money in. Um, so those goals were always there. And I'm, I was quite driven by that. And I had a team together and we used to, you know, always exceed our goal. And so I was very... 
a really good feeling and, and I was always strived, strived or strove to <laughs> exceed a goal. Um, but in my personal life, there, there was never any kind of, of sporting goal or business goal or academic goal, if I'm honest. I was a pretty much slightly above average student at Ronnebosch Boys High, you know, to get by. My folks were always like, we're not going to push you to be the best, but you have to be above average. You know, if that's the class average, you need to be X percentage above it. So that's kind of where my mindset was. I dabbled in rugby. I dabbled in, um, in water polo. I, this, will, this is embarrassing to say in front of you, but I took up cricket once upon a time. The only reason I did it is because at the end of the season, you got a jam donut and a Coke, <laughs> and that was my incentive. <laughs> and I batted once and got bowled out, and I realized, uh-uh, cricket's not for me. And I've soon realized rugby is not for me, and I soon realized competitive swimming's not for me. I don't want to be an Olympian. That was always the narrative of the coaches. I did some swimming uh, in, in my earlier school days, um, and the narrative was always, you know, if you want to be an Olympian, this is what you've got to do. It's morning, noon, and night. It's, it's uh, eat, sleep, breathe, swimming. And it was just not for me, Paddy. I wasn't, I wasn't that driven. Um, but I, I loved life. I was an active guy. I was into water skiing and, you know, anything that had a slight tinge of adventure to it used to attract me a lot more. But that never really pinged actively until I was a lot older. So you swim one Robin Island and then... And then what? You get out the water, you feel great about yourself. How, does, how did you then take the next step or what happens next? Yeah, well, the, the next step was also involves Robben Island. So, you know, you, you kind of have little epiphanies, as I said earlier, then I'm, I'm actually capable of a lot more. Now, for those who don't know, the water in and around Robben Island is really cold. And the challenge of swimming a Robben Island at 7.3 kilometers, so it's a decent distance to swim. However, the challenge of the Robben Island is really the cold. Okay, you have to perform to, to obviously swim 7.3 Ks, but anyone can really get themselves fit enough to do that. What not anyone can do, or you've got to train a lot harder and think a lot harder about it, is can you do that with the brutal impact of the cold? Uh, and, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and that hadn't quite hit me yet. It got very cold, but I kind of just pushed on through and you don't really understand what, everything that's what going. What sort of temperature <coughs> range are we talking about? Just We're talking um, Robben Island. So listen, it ranges from about nine degrees at its lowest and it'll all go on a very good day up to 18 degrees Celsius. However, swimmers who do it naturally, in other words, without a wetsuit, will usually go between 11 and a half as the bottom end um, and we, we, you know, I, I'm very comfortable at anything above 14 degrees. So there's quite a narrow range, and that's where it sits most of the time in the 12, 13, 14 degree range. So it might not sound freezing, but your average swimming pool, you know, in, in summer sits at around 28 degrees. Um, now, if you're in Cape Town and it's midwinter, your, your swimming pools, I've actually measured a few in the last few days, so I can say this with authority, it's about 14, 15, so it's the same temperature. But you're going to be in that water for two hours. Um, and yeah, just so back, back to your question, where, where it went from there was um, I had reason to do it uh, a, a second time. So now you know you've done it once, you feel all bullish and kind of bulletproof because I got, I was so psyched for it that I, I got through it fairly easily, quite comfortably. Um, and then my sister, Jill, um, who's also a great swimmer, 
um, decided that she wanted to to take on Robin Island, and I helped her a little bit with the training. And eventually, you know, she called me up one morning or one evening, said, "Hey, tomorrow morning I'm going to make my attempt. Will you swim with me?" Now, kind of quite blasé about it, said, "Yeah, of course I will. You know, I've done this before. I've got this." And I jumped in with her, and Jill and I aren't the same swimming pace. So this was a very big lesson for me. So this is the next part of my journey is when I started to realize the lessons you can learn from swimming, and especially swimming in the cold. And this particular lesson was that Jill being a, a slightly slower in pace swimmer, much, she's a very strong swimmer, but she's slightly slower than me. And you have to swim at your own pace when you're in cold water. If you swim slower, that cold gets inside you. I didn't know this yet. So the first, what, 45 minutes of the swim, I was loving it. I could do a bit of backstroke. I could look at the view every now and then and let Jill catch up. Um, and all of a sudden, around about the halfway mark, the cold got inside of me and I realized I was in deep, deep trouble. Um, and because once the cold starts tapping into your core and your core temperature starts dropping, it impacts absolutely everything. Uh, and I really had to dig very deep to make it to that beach if it wasn't for the amount of uh, uh, ego I would, uh, the dent in my ego, that if I didn't make it, I probably wouldn't have. But I made it just and it, it actually, <clears throat> Um, it's probably a trigger to, to another part of my journey where I started to realize that, that I need to understand a lot more, A, about the sport I'm now doing, and B, about how I react to it and why I react in the way I do. And that, Paddy, has laid a foundation for pretty much everything ever, ever since that I've done. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in a bit. So <coughs> at what point did, this, did you realize you <coughs> want to do like start doing bigger and bigger things? Was it a goal, again, go back to this goals, it's, was it something that you realized you wanted to do or did it just, how did it evolve? It, it has kind of, ev it just evolved. So I never sat back and said, right, now I want to, to, to reach the pinnacle of, of what I'm trying to do. It was just, it was kind of a what's next. And once you start getting into a kind of a meeting people who do this kind of thing and you find mates who do it, you start egging each other on and you start looking for, for things that you can do. So I did start setting goals at that stage to have a look at maybe how can I firstly understand Understand a little bit more of what's happening, which is a goal all in, it, all in its own. And then B, try to do the right kind of training. And this is a very kind of left of center thing to want to do, to how to handle the cold a little bit better, how to extend your time within the element of cold, because the, the human mind is the gateway to greatness. A lot of no one ever argues when I say that, but when, when I say that this gateway to greatness is actually your biggest limitation, it is so heavily evolved to, to hold you back. You know this stuff. Um, <clears throat> it opens a lot of eyes. And I realized that in the element of cold, because humans haven't evolved well at all to handle cold, we've evolved very well to avoid it. Um, because of that, when you throw yourself into the cold, whatever defense mechanisms are, are sitting in your head, they activate on a profound level and come to the fore out of your subconscious into your conscious brain and you are denied the ability of rational thought and all you can think of is how on earth do I get out of this uncomfortable uh, environment, which ultimately will kill you if you stay in long enough. I mean, there are only two outcomes. You're either going to warm the ocean up or it's going to cool you down. So there is an end point. Um, but I also started to realize that the defense mechanisms in my head telling me to get out long before I actually needed to were way overzealous. So, you know, you, you, you have got this pinging in your brain, get out, get out, get back into comfort, climb out into the support boat that's usually alongside you. Um, and the more I did the Robin Island Crossing and other cold swims, <clears throat> I started to realize um, that even though it was a routine swim for me, 
on every single swim, I was looking for reasons why I can get out, not reasons why I should get to the end of whatever goal I've set. Um, and that's what really created a fascination for me is why. I know I can do this swim. I know I can handle the cold, yet why can I not think of anything other than great excuses to get inside the support boat, which is essentially getting out of the discomfort back into comfort. Um, and uh, once you become very aware of that, of that process, you can start to work on yourself on how to override it. And it's very difficult because your mind is a powerful thing and it belongs to you and you are it and it is you and, and all those things. So how do you override it? Um, and, th and there's no textbook that tells you how to do this. There's very few people you can draw on. So my goal was to try and figure out slowly but surely how I can extend my time in the element of cold, uh, element of cold and to perform uh, within that environment. Just take <coughs> us and the listeners into a snapshot into your mind. So anytime, early days or now, you're swimming, it's cold, your body's cold. We'll talk about all the reactions and stuff that happens. For you personally, what are the mental narratives? What are the things that go on in your mind? If we could get in, in, into your mind and hear it, what are you saying? What are the things that you say to yourself or regularly say? So, yeah, Paddy, it's, a, it's an interesting question because it's, it's, not, um, it's not a uniform answer. So I do different kinds of swimming from, from extreme cold, which we'll, we'll get into where you're really going into the, the very, very low end of the, the temperature scale before the water becomes ice. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, got a bit of a frog in the throat, right up to extremely long swims like an English Channel or across False Bay where you're in the water for 13, 14 hours. And your mindset and what I tell myself in those two different genres of what I do is, is extremely different. But if I had to give you a snapshot, I'm going to have to think now, um, it's, it starts with a lot of preparation before I get in the water. So I have to physically sit down and even I've now done Robben Island 122 times. Okay, so it's pretty routine for me. I'm the guy who's done it the most in the world, blah, blah, blah. However, <clears throat> before I swim, I still take a few moments to get my head right and say, Ryan, you are going to become negative. You are going to look for reasons why you can fail rather than reasons why you can make it to the beach. If you don't go in with that mindset, if you don't keep yourself cheerful and happy and positive, you are going to get a kick in the bat, even on the swim that you know so well. So the snapshot into my mind starts before I get in the water. Um, I also have a lot of mental tricks. I know that I should, you know, I know, if I know what the temperature of the water is, I know and I can see what condition, what winds are blowing, what, what currents are at play. <coughs> Sorry. Um, I know plus mine is going to take me, let's just say, an average of two hours to get to the beach. I will then always calibrate my mind to two and a half to three hours. Okay, and I know this, it's, it's, it actually is a physical process that I sit there and go, Ryan, you are not allowed to moan until you get to the two and a half hour mark. Thereafter, you can moan and swear like a trooper, it doesn't matter. And that actually plays a huge role in my headspace when I get in. So when I start feeling uncomfortable, usually at around about the hour mark, um, I want to complain. I want to put my head up and, and say something to the support crew that I'm really battling, I'm cold. Um, I, I want to get out, that's always natural. Um, but I override it with a positive thought. And I prepare those positive thoughts before I get there. And, and, and they, they're often very personal. So if you're going to ask me like, what would help the listeners with their own positive thoughts, you've got to come up with something that, that's going to be positive for you. I can't tell you that. But I find, and that's, in, that's something as, as, let's say, as short as a Robben Island. When you take something like an, an English Channel, 
I applied exactly the same mental process. Um, you are going to hate it. The weather got terrible for me. Nine hours into that channel, things were absolutely chaotic. I was nowhere close to France, so I had about five hours to swim, um, four or five hours, and uh, the wind had come up horribly. The waves were rolling me over. The current was pushing me into the boat, and the wind was pushing the boat into me. So there was a, a whole world of pain, and you keep, because it's wavy, Every time I took a breath, I'd get a gulp of seawater. and that So you're nine hours into it now. You're swimming in just the costume, cap and goggles. Yes. The, temperate, the, the conditions are terrible. Yeah, the, the, waves the, water, the water temperature was 16. I can talk you through it. The water temperature was 16 degrees. Um, you get a... Maybe I should just take everyone back because not everyone knows or I always assume everyone knows. But when you're doing something as big as an English Channel, I booked two years before I swam the English Channel. And two years before I did it, they told me the tide I would be swimming on. So it's that specific. There are only, there are only a few months of the year that you can do it, water temperature-wise. And also within that month, there's only a certain tide cycle that the, where the currents will, are going to allow you across. So I go from Cape Town to, and I've got to sit in Dover. I've got exactly a seven-day window when those tides are going to be good. I've hired a boatsman. And within that seven-day period, I have got to hope that a decent weather day comes along for me. Um, if it doesn't, it's essentially treated like a, a, an Everest summit. You know, if the weather's bad and you're halfway up, you go down. You don't quickly rush to the summit or try and like brave it out. Um, channel's quite similar. If the weather doesn't look good, you don't go. Um, and uh, I went, but it looked, you know, I had from, I think from the, the Saturday till the following Friday, um, there was absolutely nothing for me. In fact, there's quite a long story involved there. I won't go into that. But I eventually was almost forced to make a, a call the day before I had to fly home. So, you know, on the, on the Thursday. Um, and it looked like a pretty good day. And the weather charts, which are a little bit more rudimentary back in 2008, it wasn't as like accessible to what we got today on our phones. Um, and I made a call on a day. Uh, and the first probably three hours of it were, fi were fine, no problem, nice and flat. And then the wind came up and it just got wilder and wilder and wilder. And for a swimmer, when it's absolutely mirror flat, swimming across the English Channel is a big swim, 34 kilometers as the crow flies. You're only wearing a Speedo goggles and cap. Water's about 16 degrees Celsius. So it's chilly. It's not freezing, but it's, it's pretty chilly. Um, and... It got wilder and wilder. If you even touch the support boat or you get any help from this time, you start in Dover. So you start on the beach with your ankles clear of the water. Once you walk in, your swim has started. And if anyone helps you in any way, if you grab onto the support boat or you helped with forward propulsion or anything like that, uh, you're disqualified straight away. So you, 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 know, you do get feed, so they'll throw a juice, a, sort of a carb drink to you or whatever you've prepared. So you get help in that sense, but you, you don't get any help with, with moving forward on, on, the, on, on the channel. Um, and the, the weather turned absolutely horrible and probably... From the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth hour, it was absolute chaos for me. It was really, really difficult to swim. And a flat water swim is hard. A swim with a little bit of surface chop is a world of difference. It's like chalk and cheese. It's like road running versus hectic trail running or flat versus uphill. Um, because now you're not only forward propelling yourself, you're stabilizing as well and you're having to lift your head a little higher to get a breath and your stroke changes. And, you know, when you've got to repeat that stroke many, many thousands of times, every tiny little adjustment makes a big difference to, to what your, to, to your, your rehearsed, uh, your, your training for the channel. 
Um, and yes, so I uh, was in some, some deep trouble about nine hours in. I kind of hit the wall. Um, I'm sure your listeners know the concept of hitting the wall. It's pretty much, I know you know, Paddy, but when the tank is empty, so you've, you've kind of you know, used up all your reserve energy and there's nothing left, you you've just feel that you cannot go on at all. Um, I hit that around about the ninth hour in the channel. I was freezing cold. It had started to get dark. Um, I uh, had been you know, knocked around by the waves. I drank a copious amount of salt water, so I was feeling nauseous as, as hang. Um, and, uh, you know, when you hit the wall in a running race or cycle race, it's usually the end of your race. When you hit it in the middle of the English Channel, you still got five hours of swimming, or what, what looked like four or five hours of swimming left uh, to do. Uh, it's quite devastating. So it was a huge epiphany for me. And uh, I really wanted to pull out at that stage. It wasn't a pleasant time for me. Um, I was very miserable. I couldn't, your, your, your brain can't compute when you're feeling like that and you can't lift your arm over your head. How on earth, in the dark, are you now going to try and swim another four and a half, five hours in rough water? Um, Do you remember what you were <coughs> actually thinking? Oh, I remember a, a, a world of emotions. So I've got, uh, remember it's an unstable environment, so you can't sit down and rationally now have a discussion with someone about it. Uh, you're in it. I can't hold on the boat and decide, right, what, what's my next move here? I'm treading water, waves are coming over. When you stop in cold water, that's a very bad thing. That's one of the disciplines. You, when you have a feed and you take in more carbs, etc., you have to do that in 30 seconds and keep moving. As soon as you stop, the cold sets in and it's even harder to get going again. So. Your, your time to sit and think about stuff is, is difficult. Your communication with the boat in, in heavy wind and waves, that has to keep a little bit of a distance away from you, otherwise it's going to squash you because the wind keeps pushing a big vessel over you. Um, it's communication is difficult. So I've got to make these choices in my head, in the moment, what am I going to do? And this is where I attribute a lot of value and credit to my support team. My brother was on the support team, um, Jason, and um, he's a big guy, doesn't know a lot about swimming, but I told him what he must do and mustn't do. And, you know, I told him to only give tough love. I don't want any kind of, how are you feeling? You know, are you okay stuff I want? If I show any sign of weakness, he needs to hit me with some really hard lines, which he did. Um, and I had a, uh, other people on the boat. My cousin Bradley was a, an amazing support and a lady called Herda and she was preparing different feeds. So they just concocted a, a, some hot chocolate, even though I'd said to them, don't worry about hot chocolate, I don't need that stuff. Um, they brought it on board anyway. And when I was really, really battling, she uh, threw in my juice bottle instead of my carb mix, I got a, a thing of nice, warm, hot chocolate. And uh, that... I remember was huge for me, Paddy, because I, I threw it down my throat and uh, I felt this warmth going in me and it was like pulling on a warm blanket. I promise you, it was like so soothing and so comforting. And um, I then made the decision, right, phew, just going to go one stroke at a time. And for another four and a half hours, long story short, I eventually cruised in the pitch dark and I found myself on a deserted French beach. I'm, 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 I'm not going to let you off telling us <laughs> what were you actually feeling and thinking? Yeah, I was, yes, okay, fair enough. So I was, I have to admit to a, a, an element which I'm not sure is a good trait or a bad trait, but it's definitely a trait that has helped me. And that is I had told so many people that I was going to do this English channel. And so many people were watching me. And so many people were sending, we didn't have WhatsApp in those days, some SMSs. And I was getting messages written on a whiteboard. So part of my thinking was I cannot let those people down and I don't want to look like an idiot pulling out after 
after everything. The other side was that I had four mates or three mates. So there were a team of four of us who had gone across all doing you use channels and a solo thing. You can't swim with your mates, but you can kind of train together and go and do it at the same time. And they, two of them had swum successfully in the week before me. Okay, so I had the, chat, the, 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 the mindset and was very clear in my mind that they made it. And now I cannot be the one who pulls out. So that was a huge driver for me. But somehow, and this is a part I can't explain, somehow, and I describe it when I chat to people and I give my keynotes as a switch. There's a switch in your head where you, some point you change from body to mind. Body is finished. It can't offer you anything more. Um, and the natural tendency is to get out. That's, that would be the natural solution. You gave your best. You become an excuse magnet, by the way. I don't know if you've ever heard this term. I think I made it up or I might have read it. But if I had pulled out of the support boat, onto the support boat at that nine-hour mark, I'm pretty sure everyone on the boat would have patted me on the back and gone like, wow, Ryan, well done. Nine hours in those conditions. You gave your best. Well done. That was hectic. And I would have sucked it all in as an excuse magnet going, I really, I gave, I gave my best. It wasn't my fault. It was the waves. You know, the weather turned bad. It was colder than we expected. The air temperature was freezing cold. I would have sucked in all the reasons why it wasn't me. And that is like a total epiphany for me. You know, you, we, we are designed to believe in our own limitations and we, we have no reason to challenge them when they actually hit us unless you are aware. Now, I can't tell you exactly, besides my strong support and besides the, besides the feeling that I really, really didn't want to fail. Um, and, and again, the support also said, right, you don't have to finish. You just have to give me one half an hour. One more half an hour. Can you do half an hour? I'm like, well, listen, I'll give you 25 minutes. So I gave them 25 minutes. 25 minutes, they gave me a gel, which I hate taking those gel things, by the way, but it, it was time. And uh, that gave me the little sugar boost, which made me a little more positive. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you get through that moment. And I remember just thinking uh, at the time, after the first, probably another hour after that point, I didn't get any worse. And I remember a very clear thought saying, well, if, is, if this is as bad as it's going to get and it's not on a trajectory down to death, then, you know, seriously, this is what you signed up for. So I, I, that's probably the best I can answer that, Patty. You spoke about the same train of thought. You prepare yourself to have the positive thoughts because you know the negative thoughts are going to come. Interesting that idea of the popular psychologists would say, think positive thoughts, positive affirmations, you gotta be positive and you mustn't have negative thoughts because negative thoughts are bad. Is it possible to constantly for you to override? So you say there are some negative thoughts that come up, you're looking for excuses to get out of the water into the comfort of the boat. So there must be some negative thinking going on. Is it possible to constantly override negative thoughts with positive thoughts and to always be positive for mm. a 13-hour swim? Um, speaking for myself, I don't think so. Those negative thoughts are going to come. You know, I mean, you're all human. It's impossible not to let a thought in. It's, it's how you handle that thought that comes in your head with a thought on the other side of your head that they need to meet in the middle and the positive thought needs to override the negative thought. But the longer the swim goes on, um, the harder that process becomes, in, in, in my opinion. <clears throat> so... I usually try and exercise a little bit of realism and say it's not, I'm not going to be loving this all the way across 
I understand that, but I've got to get, I know, and it's just, I'm just using figures here. If I'm doing a 34 kilometer swim to get me across the English Channel, I know that if I get to the 25 kilometer mark, there's no way I'm pulling out in those last nine Ks. <laughs> I, will, I can have as many negative thoughts as I like. I just won't allow myself to. Because, you know, you now you can see the mountains, you can see the beach maybe, you know, so, so you, you, you have a different maybe visual positivity happening and other positives that are coming that you're well over the halfway mark. You've only got 15%, forgive my maths, 15% of the way to, to, to still get there. Um, so I, I think the, the bank of positive thoughts usually just has to get me over the halfway mark and maybe a little bit further. And then I've, I've you know, the, the, the positivity of the fact that you finished, you're on the downhill slope can naturally uh, probably buffer what you didn't bank, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I, what, what you say confirms something that I've, I speak about quite a lot is that there's a concept out there, and I don't know where we got it from, that you mustn't think negative, you must think positive. So for me, that, that concept is fundamentally flawed. I think it's a technical term, it's called bullshit. You are going to think negative thoughts and that's okay and normal and you know the stuff that you've done, if you've done that and you think negative thoughts, well, it's okay for the average Joe yeah. to think negative thoughts. So it is going to happen. The problem is buying into the negative thoughts as you yeah, mentioned there, and like you, yeah. You believe them and then you follow them. So it's negative thoughts are okay, but what are you going to, how are you going to manage them, uh, scrutinize them, interrogate them, and actually come up with a what, yeah. what do I want to do here? And I think that, I mean, you, you've put it nicely, but I, I think um, that is also a, a factor of your willpower as to what you want to do. You know, in my case, it's to get to the other side of whatever swim I'm, I'm swimming. Because, you, you know, you... In my case, I'm exhausted. I'm freezing cold. The element of cold is absolutely horrible to endure. You are chafed to hang by the salt water. You're probably stung by jellyfish. Your throat is raw. Your, your tongue is swollen. So you have a negative thought when you're feeling as horrible as you are feeling. It's, it's extremely hard to be positive. It really is. Um, so I, I do allow uh, the negative thoughts. I do allow, but I always need to tell myself, you subscribe for this. If you get this, that is going to, you know, how badly do you want this goal, Ryan? Because, you know, the, the English Channel, again, we're using that a lot, but the, it's not easy. It's not meant to be easy. It's why, you know, three or four times more people summit Mount Everest than make it across because this is a very difficult challenge and you're meant to feel as shit as you feel. <laughs> and, and I think I also play a lot on that. It's, I think it's a very personal journey. I agree with the don't allow any negative thoughts is a, is a bullshit concept. Um, I, I think you need to practice having negative thoughts and overriding them and still performing with those negative thoughts in your head. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you've mentioned something that's so, in fact, every extreme athlete or adventure that I've read, listened to, spoken to, is you've got a, a reason and it's normally you, you, a reason, a better reason to carry on than to stop. Correct. And very often it's other people whether it's a, a cause that you're doing it for, a lot of adventurers do it for a cause, or you've made the commitment, or it's sometimes it even just because of the support crew, but there needs to be a bigger reason and something beyond yourself to carry on, because if it's just you and just for your own ego and doing, it's very easy in that moment when you're feeling shit to go, okay, I'm actually gonna stop, and it's okay for me to stop. 
it's who's watching and who you're letting down that plays a big role for me. And I think, as you say, for, for many. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it spoken into around, you know, have a reason to do things. You know, some people talk about having a purpose in life or having a why, having a why or reason. Those, those are sort of concepts, but there really is something in that, that if there is a reason greater than just for your own self yeah. to do something, it becomes easier to push through, particularly the difficult times. Mm. You know, Penny, it's, it's, I've, I'm such a hacker, if I'm brutally honest. So I've never studied this stuff and, you know, read all the, all the books before I do it so that I've got all this knowledge. I found all of this stuff out in my own way. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's amazing to hear you put it, you know, in, 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 you, you package it so nicely for me. There was a point I was going to make. I'm sorry, I've totally gone out of my head. Um, what did you say just before? I've forgotten. I've also um, forgotten. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. It'll come to it'll me because it, it, was, it was something that I really we, wanted to do. We're speaking about a, about a reason to do things, other people. Yes, oh, sorry, that's what yeah. I wanted to say. So for me as a, as a human, once you now get into the, the, the swimming world, there's something called the Ocean Seven. Like if you're in climbing, you get the seven peaks, and that's often a big goal for everyone. There's also the Ocean Seven. Um, if you swim the seven recognized uh, ocean peaks, uh, channels, uh, yeah, channels and uh, crossings. Um, I have never been driven by that. I have got to find challenges that appeal to me, that, that, that if there's something in me that goes, now that will be cool. I want to be able to say I swam across that or over that or around that. It has to appeal to me. It might mean nothing to you or anybody else, but I need it and that drives me. Whereas right now I'm doing channel three of the Ocean Seven. It is the Catalina Channel, which is from that island to the California coast. It's, that's just ticking off a box. I've got no passion to do it. I'm not saying I'm gonna do it. I'm, not, I'm certainly not any easier than anything that I've done. That's for sure, it's a difficult swim. Um, but it talks to my why. I, my why is not to do the Ocean Seven. Maybe I'll take them off down the line. I, I, I don't know. Um, but it plays into what you're saying and what we're discussing. If, if you've got a passion to do something and you really want it and there's an inner little thing in your head that is pinging that, that you've got to do it, you'll do the training and you'll probably push yourself a little harder. And your mind is always going to try and find reasons to get you not to do it or to stop or to bail out when it gets too tough, too sore, too painful, too difficult. You're going to bail. I want to talk about the distance and what that takes. And I also want to talk about the cold. Those are two different challenges. What interests you more to talk about? Oh, distance or... Or is there a third thing that you actually would love me to, a good question you want me to ask and to lead us into? Um, no, not, not that comes out because it's not, not, not that jumps to, to my mind, but I want to say that your question, distance or cold, the two are, are very interlinked. It is how much distance can you get and, and how cold can you endure that, that distance. Um, however, you can also treat them separately and it's, it's quite apt for right now because I have pushed as far as I want to push in the element of cold. And maybe I'll talk a little, if you want me to, I can talk a little bit about that. And then I'll tell you what my next goal is. Yeah, um, so I'd, yeah, I'd love to have that conversation. I mean, the, mm. just this morning, I, I dropped my daughter at school in Camps Bay and most mornings I stop, I jump into the water there uh, and there's 
heaps of people all floating around up to their necks, looking at their stopwatch, doing the 20 minutes in the water, getting a good freeze on, going across the road and having a coffee. And there is some pretty good science now behind what started out as this mad dude, Wim Hof. Well, he was the guy who marketed himself the best, but there's some pretty good science out there now seemingly about the benefits of even that 20-minute cold water immersion. I don't know how much you've jumped into that, but that's very popular. It's more popular than swimming for 14 hours across oceans. Um, so there really is something around the cold water. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a global, it's something that, that's spreading globally and on quite a rapid level. As you say, Wim Hof has been instrumental in branding it and everyone's now doing the Wim Hof method. I have never dug into that. To, to, Why did to you frank. start wanting to get into cold water and do the really I never cold stuff? wanted to get into cold water. I live in Cape Town and the water is cold. Yes, we've got um, it ready. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I had no choice. However, um, as I mentioned earlier, it, it started to, I started to realize just how profoundly the element of cold impacts a human and how that barrage of that, that uh, you know, when you get in, your, your, this powerhouse of a mind implements pain, panic, and fear, and they come together in a split second to, to accentuate self-doubt. You start doubting your abilities to stay in this environment, and you start looking for those reasons that excuse magnetism happens. You start looking for the reasons why you should get out. So that fascinated me as I started to do it more and more. So it wasn't a, oh, I love the cold and I think it's got great health benefits for me, it was like, hang on, my mind is telling me what I need to do way too early, long before I need to do it. And I also started to apply that to everyday life outside of the water. Where else am I in hostile turf, an uncomfortable environment, and I'm becoming an excuse magnet looking for reasons not to make the difficult decision but rather to jump back into my comfort zone, in my lane where I can deliver nice steady performance and get by and be happy, but quite possibly in all likelihood underachieve the rest of my life. So I started to draw those correlations from repeat exposures into the cold. So my cold journey, Betty, went from the waters of Cape Town um, to eventually uh, going, taking on a challenge up in Alaska, the Pennock Island Challenge, a 12-kilometer swim around an island there where a lot of the locals do it in wetsuits. It's an annual event, and I thought, well, let's go with my bunch of mates and do a, see if we can do it in our speedos. Then we set other adventure swims. We started to look for, the, as I mentioned earlier, the stuff that really pings with me. So we want to try and be the first to swim around the southernmost tip of South America, Cape Horn, the Sailor's Graveyard, really rough and dangerous waters. And if you're into sailing, I understand it's kind of the Everest to sail around Cape Horn and uh, my mates and I thought, well, why don't we go and see if we can be the first guys to swim around it. Um, and that water was a little bit colder and a little bit wilder and a little bit more scary and a little bit more unfamiliar. And each time just learning a little bit How long bit was more. that swim, just out of interest? Uh, that one? We didn't do the full circumference. We did, there are two lighthouses in Cape Horn so um, that mark the south, very, very southernmost tip of the island. And then there's a big albatross monument which commemorates all the, the people who have died there because the waters are quite you know, unuser friendly. Um, so we swam, I think, about two and a half kilometers from one lighthouse diagonally across to the other. Uh, it makes quite an interesting chapter in my book. It's uh, <laughs> the stories that, that came out of that. And that was cold water, and it was, you know, again, you learn so much about your abilities in the cold. And what I also realized is the colder the water, the more profound the impact on your mind 
and the defense mechanisms and the deny, you deny the ability of rational thought. You can, your brain only allows you one thought and that is how do I get out? You're in this panic, you've got this hyperventilation, everything is spinning in your head. Blood is rushing from your extremities, your thighs, your calves, uh, you know, not just fingers and toes and it's all sitting in your center core to keep your heart alive to beat blood up to your brain. You can live without arms and legs but not a heart. So all of that, is, is happening while you're in the cold and it becomes exponentially tougher to actually uh, perform for longer periods under that. So I, myself and a couple of mates started to become quite fascinated about this and started to push the envelope a little bit. Did, did you do research in understanding what is the end point where you actually start causing damage and how do you actually... To a, to a degree, and uh, I have to admit to, to saying, never sat down and said, right, should we try this? Let's, let's see if we're being stupid. It was more from trial and error, from going a little bit colder, a little bit colder, a little bit colder. Um, at one point, I did quite a lot of research into what does medical science say is humanly possible to endure in the cold. Um, and the, I mean, there isn't like one place you can go here. You find little bits and pieces of, of info and, and, and get a common opinion. Um, and then to try and push past what medical science suggests is humanly possible. And that is, is what kind of makes the, the pinnacle of what I talk about and, and what I've achieved in the element of cold. And that was, um, it, you know, it was a long journey to get there, but I eventually took on a challenge in Antarctica, which was a fascinating challenge. And uh, to, to jump to the punchline of that, um, myself and a couple of other South African mates did what was not meant to be possible. Okay, and they all, you know, everyone's got their opinions and their different bodies. So some would say, yes, that's totally possible, but no one had ever done it before. And um, I succeeded in swimming one mile, that's 1,609 meters, in minus one degree water. So salt water freezing below zero. Um, I did a mile 32 minutes of performing. So you have to swim and move yourself forward for 32 minutes in, in waters that cold. And that was a huge breakthrough for me, obviously mentally, to, to be able to override everything that was happening. And obviously, you know, when you're that long in that level of cold, you not just a denied the ability to think, your, your, your mind goes a bit fuzzy because hypothermia is setting in and you, you've lost your balance and you, your vision goes a little bit blurry. And it's very hard to think Am I still, you know, I remember thinking a few times in the swim, am I still swimming? What am I doing? And then you kind of, a split second later, jolt back to the fact, hell, yes, I am, you know, keep moving, arms, arm, left arm, right arm, left arm, right arm. Your legs are useless because they've got no blood. The muscles are, are, don't work at all. Um, and uh, basically that was a very, very, very difficult and dangerous, I suppose, swim, which is way beyond any medical benefits, I would argue. I'm not a medical guy, but that's beyond. So I want to jump back to, to your, your question, is that um, I certainly didn't get into experimenting with the cold, firstly, when it was a popular thing. No one was doing it back then, except to Lewis Pugh, who's a good mate, and you know, we did a lot of training together, and he was pioneering stuff and opened my eyes to a lot, and, and a lady called Lynn Cox as well in America, um, but very few. Um, and then the, the, the health benefit stuff of it, um, I, I look at it today, Patty, and I know there's science around it, and I've got a theory on why it's good, but it's not a medical theory, so you know more. Maybe I shouldn't even share this, but I know that when you get cold, so people who do their 20 minutes in Camps Bay tidal pool, 
that process I described very briefly, when the blood rushes out of your extremities and sits in your center core to, to obviously keep your heart safe, to blood, pump blood to the brain and keep your life. When you get out the water, you, that warm blood releases from your center core, goes back to your extremities, which are now obviously cold, so that blood cools, and then it circulates back to your center core. So you have a concept of the after drop. So your core temperature keeps dropping after you get out the water, and that's that's that science that is well known. And when that core temperature of yours stops dropping and it turns the corner and starts increasing and the shivering starts happening and you start slowly warming up, I believe it releases a whole barrage of endorphins. And I think it makes you feel so good, it's almost like being on a high, and I think that is wonderful, wonderfully m medical for um, for mental wellness, for anxiety, for depression, for just feeling really good. So, because every time I do one of these swims, I always think you're such an idiot, Ryan. You put yourself back in this situation. What are you doing? This will be the last. Absolutely finished. This is ridiculous. There's more to life. And I get out on the beach. I do that horrible process of recovery. I turn the corner and I'm like, wow, what's next? I've got this. I could have gone further. I could have done better. I'm going to plan something colder and further and harder. And it's, it, it makes me positive and makes me happy. Um, and I would suggest a lot of people are, are getting that benefit on a, maybe on a slightly milder scale, but more often that it just gives them that little bit of an endorphin high. Someone said in a keynote the other day, Ryan, there, there, there are much easier ways to get a high. You should try drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done it, yeah. so I can't compare. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I just think on this, there is obviously a point at which it gets really dangerous. Hypothermia is a real thing, and I would just need to say this. Yes. It is a real thing, and people do die from it because they push themselves too far or they don't manage the after drop properly. They don't manage, there is a way to manage yourself safely out of hypothermia and there's a way to run yourself into very big trouble by warming yourself up too quickly. So yeah. I think you, we, you, we're cutting corners here in the conversation there. Obviously you do understand uh, the depth yeah. so, so, of so. it and we don't necessarily have to go in now, but just to caution that it's not about blindly getting freezing cold and then having a hot shower you could run yourself into serious trouble. Thanks for bringing that, Patty, 100%. Remember, I have trained, for what we do, we train little bits, increments, increments, and we practice that recovery and we understand that recovery. Um, I have made an uh, international speaking career, not uh, inspirational speaking career, not as the guy who goes out and says, anything you put your mind to is possible. I'm the guy who goes out and says, there is an impossible. Okay, let's be real. And it's exactly the conversation we're having right now. There are only two things that's going to happen to me in Antarctica. Either I'm going to warm Antarctica up to my temperature or Antarctica water is going to cool me down to its temperature and I'm dead without any shadow of a doubt. So I'm very well aware of that. I'm glad you brought it up. So let's just put it out there. There, there certainly is an endpoint. Hypothermia is a killer. Um, but what I do preach is that where your mind tells you you can't handle anymore, and I'm... I'm referring to the element of cold, but it's whatever you want in your, your own life, draw your own parallels, where your mind tells you the end point is, is not where the end point is. There is an end point, but it's much further down the line. The magic happens between those two lines because that's outside of comfort. That's where you've got to push yourself a little bit. That's where you open the door to failure. And we all know that failure, if you treat failure right and you're introspective about it, you can fail forward. Failure is where the growth happens, the real growth. You learn the real lessons from it. 
And so many of us never go over the mind's end point because we turn back to comfort and we get by and we're happy. But we never know what lies on the other side of the line. Now, the element of cold has pushed me over that line and I've realized what I'm capable of um, way, way more than what I thought. Um, and I can extend my time in the element of cold and obviously that's translated into business and, and many other areas of my life as well. Yeah. Okay, so I'm glad we've, we've spoken about this because... Every single one of us has, well, unless you've significantly brain damage, has a little piece of my brain. It's called the amygdala. That is our early threat detector. It's like having an alarm system in your house. When there's movement, it triggers the alarm. So we all have that. And when we get into cold water, as you say, that then kicks in and it says, get the hell out of here because there's a survival threat. And in every aspect of our lives, when you walk onto stage to do a a speech when you go, in every single thing we do, we have that early warning, the threat detector that happens in the amygdala and that's where we get the fight, flight or freeze. And I think the point here that you're making is really important is that point is a very, very, it's way, way, way early. It's, it's a false alarm because we are capable of way, way more than we ever knew. And what you've done is you've understood where your your trigger is all those years ago and you've incrementally pushed it further and further and further and further. It's not about going, oh, so Ryan jumps into cold water, I'm gonna jump, he does two hours, I'm gonna jump in and I'm gonna do half an hour in five degree water. If you haven't conditioned yourself for that. You, you, you're being silly. Excellent. Correct. So you know, let's make that very clear. Don't try this at home. Although there is, I also want to make clear there's nothing special about me. I have no clever ability to self-heat my center core or, or survive any circumstance that I have better than anyone else listening. Okay, so everyone can do it, but do the work. Do, do the, understand what's going on. Do the conditioning and, uh, you know, know yourself um, so yeah, let's just get that clear as well. Because I, I hate, um, you know, stand on stage and often you put on this pedestal as like, well, he's the guy who can do that and has done all these things. Um, I can't relate to him. And I try and let everyone understand you, you really can. Not that you want to go and swim in ice water, but yeah. draw the parallels in your own life. You know, I'm, I've just, this has been my classroom. What's yours? And going back to that cold water stuff that many people do who've got access to it is, you know, some of the science is suggesting now that for anything from five to 20 minutes, depending on the temperature and through that warming up process, we get um, actually a dopamine rush. And interestingly, what some of the early science is suggesting, and I don't know, maybe it's not that early now, is that dopamine really, you, you get the hit, you get the high, and then you come down very quickly from it. So coffee, chocolate, uh, good food, sex, etc. It's a really nice high and then a, a very quick drop. The two things that seem to have a very long dopamine tail, which leaves you feeling really good for a long time. One is exercise. That's why exercise, you feel good, but you actually feel good for a long time after exercising, a lot longer after, than after eating yeah. a piece of chocolate. And for many people, the cold water immersion. So we come out and you feel that real euphoria, you get that dopamine rush. But it stays, and you know, a lot of the people talk about four hours sometimes for two days. I do think the, the shivering that people experience, there is, again, if we look, just take a step to the left, this uh, TRE, trauma release exercise or tremoring that a lot of people are doing now when an animal 
for example, gets chased in the wild and is terrified and the buck escapes from the lion, when it gets to safety, the first thing it does is it's, it tremors, it shivers. And that tremoring is actually releasing the um, adrenaline and stress from its body so it gets to a neutral position. And as humans, we walk around accumulating tiny little bits and pieces of stress through the busy lives we live. And you can actually get yourself, and there's some exercises called TRE, and you can get a therapist who actually helps you to deliberately go into the shakes and the tremors. Oh, wow. okay. The cold, the, the, the shivering after cold water is also a physical way that the body literally squeezes out and releases, yeah. accumulates. So I believe trauma. all of that, because I mean, I, I, I shiver more, more than most humans on, on this earth. So I, I know it does something good. I know how it makes me feel. But I've, I've never heard the science behind it or the, the, that there's actually some research. And, and your, your animal um, example is very interesting, actually. The, the tremoring and the, the release of stress. Yeah. I'll buy it. Um, so talk to us about, so I'm a surfer. We surf in Cape Town. I spend time in the water normally with between five and 50 people. We sit out in the water for an hour and a half. And one of the things we think about is sharks because there are sharks. And we read two days ago, there, or two weeks ago, there was a, a swimmer who was actually yeah. bitten and killed in Plettenberg Bay, an open ocean swimmer. You swam solo across False Bay, which is the greatest, biggest great white shark breeding ground in the world. Mm. Talk us ground. through yeah. feeding, yeah, breeding and feeding. Yeah, apparently just feeding. So I, I date a, a lovely lady called Lida Necker, and she's a marine biologist studying sharks. And I was also saying breeding and feeding, and she says, ah, uh-uh, feeding, not breeding. Okay, so, I didn't really want to hear that as a surfer, you but you, you saw <laughs> You'd rather have breeding than feeding. Yeah. <laughs> you can choose, but yes. Talk to us about that, that swim that you did here. And so the, the or, let, me, or let me ask yeah. another question. What, for you, what is your biggest achievement in terms of the swim so far? Oh, yeah, a, a, a biggest achievement. Or your proudest, for that you personally are most proud of. So, Paddy, I'm gonna, this is a slightly longer answer than... than um, so False Bay would be my, my very high up on the list, and I did that last year. Um, and I'm going to come back to False Bay. But I just want to go back, you know, you know, the swim that taught me the most and I'm most proud of was very early when I first started. I decided I wanted to try and swim from Robben Island to Three Anchor Bay. You get different routes. Obviously, you don't always swim to Bloberg. That's the shortest route of 7.3 Ks. Or you can do an 11 K route from the island to Three Anchor Bay. And nearly everyone who had tried it to that point had done over three hours or certainly on their first attempt had done a, a three-hour-plus swim. And I got in my head, I was only, I'd only done like a few swims, I was still early days, that I want to try and do that swim uh, in sub-three hours. So I'm not a very fast swimmer, but I trained really hard for it. And there was a current that I had read about called the Cutler's Current, a guy called Barry Cutler, once who wasn't a very fast swimmer, a very good swimmer, a hell of a nice guy, but he did the swim and he got into this current and it whooshed him across and he, he did it in like a 245 or something, which for his average pace, that was really good. So I thought, I'm going to find Cutler's current and I'm going to be the guy on his first attempt ever does that in a sub three hour. And uh, I got in, there's a quite a long story, but I've, I eventually got in and it was before we had the watch GPSs, so they had a GPS on the boat 
And my initial goal was in the first hour of that swim, I had to hit the four kilometer mark. So I put my head down. I didn't have any feeds or any stops. I just swam hard for an hour. And I put my head up because I felt really good, like I made good headway. I stuck my head up and said, right, you know, have I broken the four hour mark? And they looked at me and they said, Ryan, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've done 1.7 Ks. So I had hit the exact opposite of Cutler's current and I was head on into a terrible current. Most would pull out at that stage. I swam a bit more and I could not get out of the current. Long story short, it took me five hours and 24 minutes to make it across in really cold water. It had started to get dark, but I didn't pull out. I refused to pull out. And for me, it was absolutely natural. The thought of pulling out didn't even cross my mind. I was irritated and grumpy and tired and exhausted and frustrated, but I was never going to get out. And when I got, and, and this was my early swimming days, and when I got out, I thought I, I had this element of embarrassment because I, and I told everyone I'm going to do it sub three hours, thinking that everyone's going to go like, oh, well, you really failed that. But I got the opposite. All the big name swimmers were going, wow, dude, very few people would have stuck that out in that current for five hours and 24 minutes. That's incredible. And I realized, hang on, I've got something in my head that, that drives me when I really want to swim differently to, 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 to other people. Not everyone, but to others. So that is a swim that pings when I'm asked what was my most favorite swim. I don't know, it's not favorite, it was a horrible swim, but it, it, it taught me so much and it, it set me up for, it gave me a great amount of confidence for other stuff. Then my swim in Antarctica. And just interesting that, I mean, it, it just connects so much to when we go through our most difficult and trying times, it's really, really shit and we want to bail. But if we push through it, extract the lessons, it leaves us so much stronger for it on the other side. And it's such rhetoric that it's like, it's a pain in the ass that someone says, oh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But it really is quite true. It's true. It's, it's very true. And that, that really... I mean, I, I was, uh, as I said, I went from embarrassment, not even wanting to tell anyone, to being inundated with compliments and pats on the back. And I, and I think that was a turning point that now I can actually face some bigger and better. And that's when I started to to look at swims like the English Channel, which were, couldn't have been more out of away from what I'd ever want to do as a human. Um, in fact, in the early days of swimming, everyone asks you, you know, not when, not if you're doing the channel, it's when you're doing the channel. And I was like, my, my narrative for many years was not, not interested, not for me, way out of my league. Um, then I did the channel, so it was a very important one for me um, and was certainly my favorite swim for, for a very long time. Um, Paddy, I've done so much now and each and every adventure has got a real cool story to it, which is why I've written a book and I thought I would only write one book. I got halfway through my stories. I got up to like 2014 and realized that I, I definitely need a second book. Otherwise, it's going to be too big. Um, but more recently, so Antarctica was huge. That was pushing my, my real, real limits to the very end of tolerance of cold and coming out and literally needing humans to bring me back to, you know, you, you couldn't survive yourself. You needed some help to get back up, but to be able to keep my mind. Just out of interest, that, so you've done that one, that one mile in 32 minutes in minus one degrees. How long did it take you to get back to, to normal. normal? Yeah. Um, I would, listen, if you're measuring normal as your core temperature being back at where it should be, that I don't know because we didn't measure it, but that would be a lot longer. But I was, I, I know this because I was kind of doing selfie interviews 
messages letting my family know that I'm still alive, etc. Um, two hours afterwards. So there's a, there's a long period of no shivering and there's heavy hypothermia. And we've practiced on how to recover from that and how to keep your, your mind in that and don't lie down. We've, we've got a whole, we taught the medical guys a whole bunch of stuff just from our experience and how we recover best. And then you go through to, to the showers eventually, probably 20, 25 minutes later. And that's when the, the real shivering comes in. And that's not a pleasant thing because everything is, it's so excruciatingly sore. Your fingernails and toenails and, and maybe another piece of anatomy in that cold water really, really, really hurts when the blood starts coming back into it. I mean, I can't explain the pain. It's like putting your hand on a metal or a concrete surface and taking a hammer and smashing each and every one of your fingernails with a hammer. It can be that sore. Um, so that's a very horrible process, but then once you come out of that... Um, Is it a hot shower or just a You start a with room temperature. So it's a cold shower, but I can't feel anything. I'm sitting, I'm curled up in a ball on, on the back and they've got a little shower over my head, which is room temperature water. It feels boiling to me, which is very comforting, but it's not boiling clearly. Um, and then slowly they'll increment that temperature very slowly on, on kind of our command. Um, I would say a little bit up, a little bit up. So you really don't, you don't go when you're really, really cold. You don't get don't, into a hot as shower. As you said earlier, don't try and go from that and jump into warmth at all. You're, you're probably in for, for uh, that might cause cardiac arrest or something. Again, I'm not the, the medical guy, but I just know that's bad. Um, I, won't I mean, I just think something on that again, I was having this conversation interesting with Dale Stain, who was actually one of my first guest on the show and we we actually did a a, we started by doing a one kilometer open ocean swimming 11 degrees and and we thought we were pretty tough guys now when I think about that and reflect now I feel like a a little old granny sitting with (laughs) with the Chuck Norris of swimming (laughs) Chuck Norris But, but just if somebody is really freezing cold like really really cold and pulling out the water do not put them into hot water straight away. You yeah. very gradually warm them up. Otherwise, it's actually the, yeah. the hot water that will kill them or could yeah. kill them. Very quickly, I mean, just for years, the safety message. If you do come across someone coming out of the ocean and they're in distress, first get their, their wet costume off them, uh, get them dry. Okay, get every bit of water off them because you can't warm up with that water on your skin. Get them dry, wrap them in blankets, get hot water bottles over them uh, if you've got that kind of access uh, get them really, really nicely warm, rub them down. It depends what you got. You know, we go into saunas. We first stay outside a sauna and you, you get through a certain level of, of recovery and then you go inside the sauna um, where you need that superheated. That superheat is very welcome eventually, but you've got to turn the corner before you go in. Um, so where were we? So that was, um, that was Antarctica and then False Bay was probably my new favorite uh, partly because it was such a process for me to get my head right to do that swim. So there'd been a par- just a bit of history. It's a 34-kilometer distance from one side to the other. There'd been approximately 30 attempts on it. And uh, before I did it, five people had ever made it. Okay, And one of the reasons people bail is because it's a very volatile body of water. It's not like an English channel or one of the known channels which are tidal and you know that t- current's going that way 
for six hours and then it's going to change and go that way for six hours or whatever. It's a lot of these things are, and they've usually got commercial pilots who make a lot of money out of people wanting to swim them. So they've studied it and you just pay your money and you swim whichever way the boat tells you. False Bay is different. You know, there's not, it, it's, no one knows the currents in False Bay. No one knows really what happens out in the middle from a swimmer's perspective. Uh, five people had made it from an easterly direction from Roy Els in the east across to Miller's Point. And that was the conventional way and the wisdom that you don't swim the other way because the southeast kind of blows in that direction that the roll of the ocean will, will be in your favor if you swim across. Um, so I wanted to do False Bay, but I wanted to do it with a slight difference. I wanted to be the first guy to try it the other way and succeed. And there's been one attempt at the other, the other way and uh, it, it, it was a failed attempt. So I had to try being, in, in my own world, a little bit braver because everyone was saying, don't be an idiot. You know, <laughs> that's the tried and tested route. Why would you want to go the other way? But working with um, Big Bay Events and Derek Fraser's team, I don't know if you know them, but they, they're really amazing. They, they're great with water safety and specialize in open water swimming in our waters. So I worked a lot with Derek and uh, he also agreed with, with the theory that if we catch the, the, a day where the westerly is blowing, um, it brings in the cold water, which is not good. It raffles the water up quite a lot, which is not good. But if you're clever enough, you can, you can catch the tail end of the warm water after a nice bout of southeast, and you can uh, ride the westerly winds into Toroy Else. Um, and that was my theory, and Derek supported that and researched that with me. Um, and Paddy, after a lot of talking about doing False Bay, I finally, in March of 2021, last year, found myself on the shores of False Bay and uh, gave it a go. And I just wanted to get across. What time do you start in the morning? So I met them at five and I started very promptly at six. So it's still pitch dark. So I've got to jump into that water in, in the pitch dark. And I wanted to say a lot of the swims that have failed have bailed out voluntarily because they haven't made it across in daylight hours. About an average of a 12 to 14 hour swim. So if, if, you, if it starts getting dark, you don't want to be in the water. Because that's like, and, and again, here's the, 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 the sort of 101 shark. Great whites don't eat humans. Um, if they identify you, generally 99.999% of the time, they're not interested. However, if it's pitch dark and they can't see you and they hear splish splash on the top of the ocean, they come and take a bite to see what you are. They're opportunistic predators. So the, the theory is... So the theory is you fucked in your head to jump into False Bay from there in the dark. That's not the theory, that's, that's <laughs> well, the reality. <laughs> well, maybe, you've you got to do, listen, yeah. I Sorry, I just have to. <laughs> I, I don't get a lot, of, a lot of love for it, but you, 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 kind, of, you, you kind of have to... Um, make a decision. In fact, I've got some wonderful video footage. As I started, that's from, they, they take you around from Miller's Point, you chug around to, to another uh, Miller's Point slipway and you kind of grease up and get yourself ready and then you jump off the boat and you swim about 100 meters to the slipway, clear the water and then you'll, you walk back in and that's how your swim starts. And it was pitch, pitch dark and I was ready but I'm quite nervous and I've got uh, my girlfriend Lee on the boat and uh, she's the shark person, she said, there's not chance she's getting in the water at any stage in the night. So she, she's like, made me a little more nervous. But as I'm about to jump in, they're like, go, 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 it's time to jump. I like look in the water, which is pitch black. And I can see there's something, there's like a presence there. So I, I don't want to jump on something. So I asked him to bring a torch and have a look. And there is, blow me down, what looks like half a seal floating 
exactly where I've got to jump in, um, which was quite funny. I've got cool video footage of that. Um, and so at least that you, shark had eaten. You can't help wondering what happened to the other half of that shark, but then, you know, you just, I just literally jumped right next to the, the half a seal and <laughs> swam in. So that does play on my mind. I'm not a cowboy, and that is part of the discipline of this, by the way, and let's just talk about that. So it's not just a very far way to swim. It's a very far way to swim in cold water, not freezing water. It was 18 degrees Celsius, so it's it's. Um, Colesway gets really cold, but I had planned, uh, you know, for the for the warmer water. Um, you also are you're going to get extremely tired. The waves came up huge, so I was being rolled around. So now you're extremely tired. You're extremely cold. Um, it is maybe dark, although it got light, so it wasn't an issue for a long time. But you also got the psychology of what's down below you. And every now and then a little seal will shoot under and play with you and you get a fright or you hit a piece of kelp or swim yourself into a jellyfish. Um, and you realize that this fear of sharks that you think you've got under control jumps to the fore. You get a huge jolt, even if your hand just scrapes something. Um, I swam, I, got in, I started the swim and you know, got through the, the, the dark patch. It got light quite quickly, you know, probably within 45 minutes, you know, the sun came up. Um, and about two and a half kilometers off Miller's Point Slipway, still with 32 k's to go, I swam into the most brutal patch of uh, blue bottles. Now, I don't know if you've been stung by a blue bottle. It uh, is, just an individual one, not, yeah, a, not a patch of them. It, it is brutally sore. Uh, and I swam, I probably got stung between 20 and 30 times into this massive patch of blue bottles that get weaved underneath my watch strap and my fingers. They get stuck in my beard and sting me under my nose and on my tongue. And it really, really is sore. Now, I'm telling you the story not to, to try and make my sport sound even worse. You have to prepare your mind for that stuff. Because if you get one blue bottle sting, that's quite horrible, okay? But you can kind of brush it off and go, that was unlucky and you know, say a few swear words and get over it. When you're stuck in the blue bottles and you're pulling them apart and trying to get the, 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 the stinging stuff off your hands, it's very hard for your mind to trip and go, whoa, and put a hand on the support boat or get out and try and, you know, abort the swim without really thinking it through. Um, and that's, I never came close to, to pulling. I mean, that wasn't even an issue. But if I wasn't rehearsed, if I hadn't practiced in the ocean and been stung a million times before, that would have been too, too much of a sensory overload for, for me, and it is for many, and they'll jump out. So I had about five, 600 meters of blue bottles, um, and I just waded through them. You also don't know that it's going to end. It might go all the way through, and then you're going to accumulate too much poison, and they'll pull you anyway. But I managed to get through it, and they dissipated, and I, I swam. And as, as I can hear Lee saying on the boat, she says, oh, well, at least he's got his stings to keep him warm. <laughs> Uh, and how much did I mean? How much did the sharks play on your? And I mean, I'm asking that for it's purely, you know, personal because you know I surf and you think about that. Yeah. But I mean, how much did the sharks? You know, when you're jumping in at Miller's Point at night, you know you're swimming across where the sharks swim off that edge there. I mean, you you would know where they swim, and your your girlfriend would definitely know you swim across a highway. Yeah. Um, Paddy, it plays a huge role in your mind. I'm not going to say, ah, don't worry about sharks, but I kind of do the odds. Firstly, the orcas have been around, so they're far less great whites in False Bay. That, if I'm honest, would not have played a role in my decision. I would have done it anyway. Okay, it's been, it's been done before because I honestly believe the odds are so low that I will get eaten. I mean, you go out and you, and you surf. There's a chance you're going to get taken, but you take that risk because it's, the odds are so small. 
but you think about it and it freaks you and if a, you know something touches your foot, you're going to have a fright. It's exactly the same, but I've just got to try, and I do this through practice, believe it or not, it's not always that easy to put that at the back of my mind. Believe, make the decision. If you think you're going to get eaten, don't swim. If you think you're not, then believe in that and do it and, and, and accept the risk um, as long as it's a calculated risk. So I, I'm, again, I'm not looking to get eaten by a shark. It, it freaks me out, the story of the guy in, in Plet. In fact, my, my one and only real scary great white encounter was in Plet, by the way. I was training for uh, the North Channel. I was trying to swim from Ireland across to Scotland. And I had a, a week timeshare at the Beacon Isle Hotel. So I was there with my family. It was quite a bad time because it was like at the pinnacle, my training. I literally did that week and then I flew to Ireland. So I had to do some swimming there. And um, this was three, four years ago now. And I swam off the beach. Anyone who knows the Beacon Isle, hopefully a lot of your listeners know the, the, the geography. Swam off the Beacon Isle rocks and I was swimming all the way around to Lookout Beach. So you kind of cut diagonally across. It was early in the morning, not another soul. And I just wanted to do like a 5K loop or something. And I was swimming out in the bay. And just when I was getting into a rhythm, the water was beautifully clear. I could see the bottom about 10 meters below and I was just starting to enjoy it. My eye just caught something as I took a breath. And I'm so used to dolphins swimming with me and seals and everything, so you know, you don't panic. But I took a deep breath and I looked down and here came from directly behind me, came the submarine. <laughs> it was massive. So it came directly by swimming about two meters below me. So it almost feels like I could touch it with my hands. And I realized I identified it as a, as a great white, literally coming behind me, swimming slowly underneath. So I did like a little jolt and I looked around to see who I could call. There wasn't a surfer, a swimmer, a kayaker, a boat, nothing anywhere. I was all alone, smack out in the middle of the bay. Um, so I thought, okay, stay calm, take a deep breath, which I then did because now you don't want to breathe. You want to take your eye off the thing. So I took a really deep breath and I just watched as it slowly swam underneath me. And I had my GoPro in the back in my Speedo in case I saw something cool. But I didn't have the, I didn't have the guts to pull it out. I was too like, worried. Um, and I watched this thing. It just swam slowly in front of me and it kept going. And I was just getting to a place of, wow, you've, you've handled this really well, Ryan. All your years of training and, and you know, you've actually put it to practice. And I think I'll just keep swimming because, you know, as per the theories, the shark just kept swimming. And it got maybe about five or six meters ahead of me and it did one of those little turns. <laughs> And it jolted around and we made eye contact. Petty, I lost all semblance of cool. Uh, and I had to swim about 250 odd meters to get to the beach. You must see the GPS on my watch. It's like a 90 degree angle. And I swam as hard as I possibly could because everything just started to panic in my mind. I, I visualized this thing coming after my feet. So I was just pelting it out. And I eventually get to the beach. I swim right up until it's like waist deep. And I stood down and I stood right on a crab, not on it, next to him. The thing bit my toes. <laughs> and there's a classic little piece of video footage that I've got where I eventually pull this GoPro out of my, my Speedo bum and I switch it on. And I'm like, <laughs> just had a great white and, and a crab just bit me. <laughs> Crazy times. Anyway, but that's out of all the sea swimming I've done, touch wood, that is... Uh, my only real shark encounter, where it was me and the beast. And it did nothing to me, it didn't chase me. My head had chased me, but it really didn't. It just, you know, carried it, looked at me and said, oh, I don't eat that, and off it went. So you're, we're talking about your, um, the false bay crossing. Yes, 
So, um, yeah, so I started in the dark. Everything went fine. The blue bottles was a, was a real early hurdle, but I got through it. Um, then the wind came up, something really horrid. Paddy, I had prepared for my mind for a 14-hour swim. So I said to myself, as we discussed earlier, it's dark when you get in. It's going to be dark when you get out. You're not allowed one negative thought in between. When it gets dark the second time, you can start moaning and swearing and looking where the beaches and the rocks are. That, that's kind of just the, 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 the discipline I went in with. Um, the wind came up way stronger than predicted and the waves were rolling. They weren't pushing me in the right direction. They're coming across me. So that, and it's very hard to swim in that position. You know, if you get on the pinnacle of the wave, it actually lifts you up and turns you a little bit, then you've got to readjust and get your direction right. However, I got to the 15, I was watching my watch. For the first time, I actually swam with a watch and I was checking. I was like, I'm actually doing a decent pace here for me in the open water. And on the 15 kilometer mark, 15.2 kilometers, I stopped for a feed. Every half an hour, I stop tread water. They throw some bottle, whatever we prepared. I drink some carb stuff and they then take it back and maybe throw a few grapes in my mouth or whatever I've got. And uh, the Derek Fraser, who, who was the, my chief skipper, just said, Ryan, what, what is the distance on your watch? I said, it's 15.2 Ks. And uh, he said, that's the same on my GPS. I concur. He said, if you keep this pace up, you're going to make the record for the swim which would be a Guinness record. Guinness recognizes the foster swim across that. And I remember just saying, fuck off, Derek. I don't want to hear that. Excuse me for swearing. But it, it wasn't a positive, it was a half positive saying I'm doing well. But when I've got now the seed of thought that I might get a record, I've got such a, a, a pace strategy that I've prepared for this swim, Paddy. And if something disrupts that and I now start trying to push, um, there's a huge chance. Remember, I've still got probably 18 kilometers to swim from that point. So it's a long way to go. The water's rough and uh, I really didn't want the pressure of trying to chase a record. I just wanted to successfully make it to the other side. Um, but it just played in my mind and played in my mind. I cut my feet a little shorter. I pulled a little harder. But I kept telling Derek, I don't want the record. Just you can stop telling me about it. And he's like, okay. Um, and we got to within 10 k's of the coast. And Derek just said, right, I'm going to say it one more time. If you keep the same pace you're doing, you don't have to go faster, you're going to get this record. And uh, I just held the pace. I was feeling good. He said, I need the next 10Ks in, in three hours. I said, I'll give it to you in two and a half. And I was feeling so good. And I did it in, a, in 2.37. And I knocked about 47 minutes off the record before that, which was, was held by Baron Nokia, who's a much quicker and, and better swimmer. So what this says doesn't say anything about how wonderful I am. It just says I chose the right direction to swim that no one had ever got right before. I'd chosen the right day with the help of, of my support team. Um, and I'd had great support in the swim and, and great direction and skippering to get me across. So the stars aligned and I did it in eight hours and 39 minutes. By 2.30 in the afternoon, I was done <laughs> and uh, caught a ride back home and you know, went out for dinner. Wow. I remember reading about that, and I mean, it's also it's awesome hearing. But I mean, as you're talking, what naturally happens in my mind is like there's just so many lessons in that that you haven't followed the crowd. You know, you've made your own decision. You've gone your own direction. You've got your reasons. You've done your preparation. It's like you know, I'm, I'm looking at going into any venture, trying anything. You you start off and you're jumping in the you're jumping in in the dark. You're swimming in the dark. It's, it's, it's probably more dangerous. You're not quite sure early on. You, you are 
you think of a new business venture, often you are sort of paddling around in the dark and you've got a long way to go and you, you maybe think you're going to hit the odd obstacle like a, a um, blue bottle, but you've gone and hit a, a patch of blue bottles. That, that's actually reality what happens in life. Yeah, that is COVID. Um, that's COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So right to, there. To, you know? to be, uh, yeah, to, you yeah. know, that really could have ended in the first two and a half Ks. I think, w- without wanting to sound arrogant, because there are a lot of really tough swimmers who also would have got through it. But I would imagine a high percentage of swimmers who haven't had the privilege, privilege in inverted commas, of being stung by jellies and blue balls a hundred times, that that would have snookered their swim yeah. straight away. That I say with confidence. Yeah. And with reality, you know, COVID hit all of us hard, and a lot of people. Gave up, threw their arms in the air, sat down, sat on the couch, stopped pushing, and just started waiting. Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, whether it's COVID or that is a metaphor or the the blue bottles, it's tough times. Sometimes they just they they tougher. They go on longer than we expect, and tie that back into we all have that amygdala, that part of our brain that goes, this is uncomfortable, this is not good, this is not safe, this is bad, I need to start finding excuses, I need to bail, I need to stop, I need to give up, try something else. And again, those are just, it's an early, way, way too early warning signal. It's actually a false alarm. A when false you think alarm. we're in trouble, yep. you're almost always not. When Obviously, um, there's, there's real trouble. But most of the fear, the anxiety that we experience is actually just a concept we create for ourselves, the mind. Yeah, Paddy, and that, that is exactly what I preach and you, you're reaffirming it completely. Like blue, those, those, yes, an hour of blue bottles is going to really hurt you, but 30, 40 blue things, bottles, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just going to sting you in a lot more places, but the pain is going to be just yeah. as, as much for the one or... 20. Just to tap into something you said, and, and this is something that I've shared on stages around the world now and in blog posts, and I, I really believe it because I lived it. Um, as a public speaker, you can imagine how COVID impacted me. I had a nice full diary of, of talks around the world. They were cancelled overnight. I don't, I don't need to imagine it, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> Absolutely. So you, you are, we, we're in the same boat. They disappeared. So that was my income gone. There was no... At, the, at that time, there was no Zooms and, and Teams that I knew of. And, you know, you certainly, how do you deliver an inspirational keynote on? So it, it really whacked me hard. And I started with, oh, well, you know, I'm going to have to try and ride this out and sit it out and sit and wait. Um, and I then started looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. How long is this going to take? And, you know, or might I be able to get my speaking bookings back? And it took... A little, a few months actually, for me to actually realize, and I came up with the following quote, hopefully I I remember it properly, but if you are looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, if you're chasing the light at the end of the tunnel, you're getting it horribly wrong. And this is in all circumstances, but very applicable in COVID. Okay, you're in this dark, gloomy, damp and cold tunnel. If you layer up a little bit, put on some warm clothes, adjust your eyes to the darkness of the tunnel and start looking for the opportunities that are right there in the tunnel with you, but might just be hidden because you don't have the immediate skill set to unlock them. Use a little bit of time you got to learn those skills so you can unlock those opportunities in the tunnel. If you do that and that becomes your focus, that light comes chasing you. You don't have to chase it. And that, I can say, absolutely epitomizes what has happened on my COVID journey. Um, which was brutal and I'm still recovering from financially for a long time to come, no doubt. However, 
the skill sets that I learned in COVID out of necessity, the um, application of going online and doing and, and, and starting you know, figuring out the Zooms and being able to do digital presentations way beyond COVID has great value. Um, doing uh, performance coaching courses and understanding a little bit how to, to teach people. I've got all these... I've got all these lessons in my head and all this value to offer, but how to communicate it properly. I went into performance coaching and that's now another side of my business. I used the time to write my book, um, which you're never going to have time to write your book until you make time to write your book. Um, and all those opportunities I embraced in COVID and I'm, I'm very pleased to say I've come out the other side uh, with, with a lot more artillery than I went in with. I mean, that's a great, I, I love that analogy of, or that story of not looking at the light at the end of the tunnel, but actually being in the tunnel. And I link it straight back to what you were talking about previously in your, in your um, false bay crossing. You get halfway across or not even halfway across and the guys say to you, keep doing this and you get a world record. Yeah. That's now getting you looking 18 kilometers down the line at the record. And if you focused on that, it takes you out of the moment and out of what do you need to do between right now, now and the next each and every stroke, each and every half hour break between feeds, each kilometer, if you're here now and you do this properly, then when you get to the end of the tunnel, which is at the other side of False Bay, you've got your world record. You've got it. Yep. But if you're focusing on the world record halfway through, well, that's exactly what pressure, that's the origin of pressure is I'm here now yep. and my mind has gone to some time in the future and imagining yep. an imaginary success. Yep. And the mind, we can't deal with the future. And you that know, creates pressure. You, it's, it's great. I love, I love the way you've joined those. I hadn't thought it like that. You know, and, and also part of the great satisfaction for me was I've essentially opened that route. I've pioneered that route. I was brave enough to try it uh, first. Well, actually, I wasn't brave enough to try it first. I tried it second and succeeded first. So um, let's be clear on that. Since then, so no one had swum false bay, I think, for nine years, seven or nine years, Okay. I did it, all of a sudden there are 20 people lined up to swim False Bay, that route. Um, just open, I'm so proud of that. And since then, a guy called um, uh, Ross Duncan swam it. I was on the boat seconding him. Uh, and uh, um, a youngster, Kyle Stevens, I helped him just with a bit of mindset stuff. And he's a youngster, he took my record off me. Um, and, uh, and a guy called Simon Ince, who's the oldest guy to do it in his uh, 60s. Uh, also swam false bay now. So it's it's just amazing. And I think it also speaks a great narrative. Once someone's done it, once you know it can be done, it becomes the norm. It's like Robben Island. Now every second person's doing an island. Um, so I'm now looking around what, what what's next to, to pioneer. And it might be not a completely original idea, but I want to make it accessible. I want to open the doors. I want people to, because a lot of people relate to me. I've got a big uh, well, I've got a big community and a lot of people relate to me and watch me. And if I can do it, then they reckon they can do it too, and which they absolutely can. Uh, and I've always loved that. I'm, I've never been there. I'm on the pedestal. I'm unique. Um, if I can do it, you probably shouldn't try that, that kind of attitude, which you try and keep this uniqueness. I want everyone to do it. Um, and then I will spend my time looking at what, what's next and, and what I can be brave enough to try. And of course, when you're brave enough to try something, you have to accept that there's a very good chance, there's a higher probability that you're going to fail. And with failure comes all the, cons the, the, the humiliation, the ego dent, the, the consequences. Um, and again, this human mind of ours, the, what's the amygdala 
doesn't, it's there to protect you from that failure, doesn't want you to fail. It's obviously a very important part of our evolution, so you don't do something stupid like walk into a fire and those alarm bells go off. But its side effect, I always say, is to protect you from the emotional pain that comes from failure. And that early, way too early protection from the emotional pain that comes that if you fail, keeps you in your comfort zone. Once you start understanding that process, you, you can unpack so much in your life. Um, not just sporting life, I'm talking business and family and, and just how you perceive yourself and, and your daily challenges. So in this, at 30 years old, you swam across and we spoke about, just touched on some of the amazing things. There's so many other things that you've done and it, it's an awesome captured in your book. And what is your biggest failure or disappointment over that time? I've, I've got two. And again, this is from these two, I've learned more than all my successes put together. Um, the first one I'll tell you about, uh, you must tell me if I go on too long, Paddy, um, is I tried to swim from Russia to the USA. So the year, a year before I was invited with a group of, of South African mates to buy a, a group of Russians who were putting together this very big budget relay where we were going from mainland Russia, we we're going to swim across the Bering Strait uh, to Alaska, okay, in, in a relay format. Um, on that trip, and I knew about them before, but on that trip we went right past two little islands called the Diomede Islands. Um, one is, its real name is Ratmanova, which is a Russian island, and exactly as the crow flies, 3.8 kilometers from that is, is it's called Little Diomede, which is an American island. So the one lives in Russia and the other lives in America, and down the middle of those two islands, which are 3.8 kilometers apart, runs the international date line. So your one island is essentially 23 hours away from the other in time. And I decided that it would be absolutely fascinating to swim solo from one island to the other. Now remember the water is way cold. I don't know if any of your listeners watch Deadliest Catch, you know, that crab thing on Discovery. Now that, that's the Bering Sea, so that's the kind of water that you're dealing with a lot of the time. Um, and a lady called Lynn Cox, I mentioned her earlier, she had swum this. She's a one and only human who had ever done it, and she's a female. Now, in my sport, and I think many other sports, there's a category for female and there's a category for male. Females are way better at what I do, by the way. They, they really are. And she had done it, and I decided I wanted to be the first male to swim from Russia to the USA solo. And um, I eventually teamed up with a group of mad swimmers, Jean Craven and a, and a whole group who were going to, who wanted to also do it, but they wanted to do it in wetsuits. They weren't interested in pushing limits in the cold. I, however, wanted to do it in my speedo. Um, so I flew from Cape Town to Joburg, Joburg to uh, London, London to New York, New York to Anchorage, Anchorage to Nome, Nome to Prince of Wales. And then I got in a little boat and went out to the island. And um, it, in fact, it's, it really is a fascinating story of all the, pieces that came together, but very, very quickly. This was in 2014 when Russia uh, first uh, caused trouble with the Ukraine, so political tensions were very high in that area. The Russian island that I've mentioned now is a Russian military base, and they denied me permission to get on their island. That's not a recognized entry point across the border, and there was just no way. Things were too tense to, to actually be allowed, and uh, we were told you'd be in big, big trouble if you illegally come into Russian waters. Um, but of course, you don't get world first by following the rules. That's another great lesson to me. So I decided that I'd go anyway and, uh, and you know, find a local. Um, when you get there, you find guys that you can throw a bit of cash at and they always know the loopholes rather than trying to sit in South Africa and plan it. And, um, 
And when I got there, I didn't get any love and any support. It was only like, if you caught there, you know, the big tensions between the two islands, but nine months of the year you can walk across and these guys shoot those ones, walrus and what they live off. It was very, very remote. Um, and and uh, we had an American company that were there with support boats and they also bailed at the last minute and said, guys, we, we'll take you up to the halfway line, but we're not going over the imaginary line in the middle. Um, because we lose our, our permits and our insurances and all of that kind of stuff. So there were a million things that went wrong. I still gave the swimmer a, a, a go, but I can't claim that record because I was too scared to access the Russian island and swim in 3.2 degree water, three and a half kilometers, um, and then get pulled out by the Russians. I was told I'd be shot out, but I really don't believe that, but that's the narrative. Um, and uh, long story short, Paddy, I swam the 3.8 Ks, so I swam from Russia to the USA, but I didn't access the two islands, which means I cannot claim a record. And that was a big mental failure on my part, a big mental failure. I was too, probably a lot of people have said to me, oh, well, you made a really wise decision. And I did make a wise decision, but I'm pretty sure that if I had just climbed out on that Russian island and I had tried to swim, I would have got back uh, into American waters in, in time and made it to the American coast. Um, alternatively, if they had arrested me, I would have talked my way out of it. However, I would have been hypothermic and probably not got the right treatment and that might have been a whole different issue. But I lost my nerve is what I'm trying to get to and uh, I couldn't claim the record. And that was a long way to go and it was... Um, something that I really, really wanted. It was one of those passion points for me that that's something that I want to say I've done. So, um, yeah, I was, I was disappointed about that. It, so, it sounds disappointing, but I, it, it's quite a heroic failure. Maybe. I want to hear, like, and what was your other failure? The other failure was when I tried to swim the North Channel. Um, and this has actually become a really cool keynote of mine. It's called Failing Forward. Um, I um, wanted to try and swim from Ireland across to uh, Scotland. It's 34 kilometers again. A lot of these channels are, are that distance, but it's very cold, very cold water, but not like, not, it's 12, 11 and 12 degree water. So that is pretty darn cold um, for the amount of time I would have to spend in that, uh, in that water. And um, there's a lot attached to the story that happened before I got to that start line. Um, and I was 100% confident and trained and ready. And I swam for six hours uh, into, the island, uh, into this channel. I'd done just short of 20 kilometers. So I was well over the halfway mark. And um, I just started, to, I just started to slow down, but unbeknownst to me. And, um, you know, up until those six hours, every half hour you stop for a feed and the guys are giving me the thumbs up and they're clapping and, oh, you're killing this, you're doing well, you're on track everything's perfect. That's what I'm used to. I'd never failed anything properly before and I, I, was, I was used to that accolade. And all of a sudden on the sixth hour I stopped and uh, the Irish guy, Patrick Mullen, was shouting at me. He's like, Ryan, I need more from you. You're going to have to pull something out the bag. And I was like, what's he on about? You know, I've I'm, I'm been swimming so well now. I haven't slowed down. So I put my head down a little embarrassed and try to pull harder, try to up my pace. And I just... It felt like I just wanted to go to sleep, Paddy. I, I had nothing in my arms. But I pushed and pushed. Now, you know, when you're doing a swim like this, it's excruciatingly difficult and it's a brutal, brutal, brutal uh, channel. So I know I'm meant to feel shit. And I'm feeling shit, but I can't now go, oh, I feel shit, I must end. You know, I'm feeling terrible. 
Um, but that's how I'm meant to feel. So I try and swim and I push through. I make it all the way another half an hour. And this point, I'm now start, I'm battling to keep my head above water. I'm really, really battling. My, I can't see. Everything's going dark in my eyes and I can't understand why. I think it's my goggles. And the paddrig's now screaming at me. There's, a, there's no... In, in swimming, things like this channel, there's no like gentle love, how are you feeling, Ryan? You know, do you want anything? Like, can we help you? It's just, do you want to go to fucking Scotland or back to fucking South Africa? You fucking give me more. That's the language that's coming, you know, and I can hear this, but, so I really try, but I, I just, I absolutely cannot give more. I'm trying, but I'm, I'm literally sinking, Paddy, and I think it, I can't get air. I'm, but it's because the waves are coming, I chose a really horrible day, and the waves are coming over my face. And I was sucking in water and I, you know, you, you kind of sometimes see a wave and you, you hold your breath and you wait for the next opportunity and a wave comes again, you hold your breath. Now, I challenge anyone listening, if you're running and you're out of breath, hold your breath for five, ten seconds and see, it's really hard. So I'm out of breath, but I thought that's what the problem was. And then all of a sudden, after six and a half hours, everything just went dark and I was gone. And before I knew it, I was in the support boat. I don't know what was cutting um, and there was a mad flurry of activity around me, and I remember my speedo going, Phew! someone pulled it off. I was like, what, what, what? Um, and uh, people were just asking me questions, trying to keep me awake, and all I wanted to do was just go to sleep. Uh, everything was very hazy, but through the haze, I just heard what can only be described as the most horrific sound, like the death rattle. And I could just hear this, Last, this sort of low-range rasping sound coming from it. And I realized through the haze of my head that um, it was from me. So it was my lungs. And I had contacted SIP. I don't know if you know what that is. Swimming-induced pulmonary edema. So my lungs were filling up slowly with water, okay, due to a great chemical imbalance. No one's pinpointed this is what causes it, but from a whole array of things, chemical imbalance had happened. Um, I'd sucked in too much salt water. I'd had like only two hours of sleep before I'd got in. The water was really rough. It was 11 and a half degrees Celsius or 12, somewhere around there. So I was properly hypothermic and it had disrupted a chemical balance, allowing the, I think the permeable layer around your lungs or the, input, the one that doesn't let water in, disrupted that and it let water into my lungs and it's slowly drowning you. So I'm now being robbed of oxygen. And that's why I couldn't pull harder. That's why my muscles weren't responding. Um, and I was literally drowning. And, and I got to a point where there's no more oxygen in my brain and I passed out, boom. And uh, I, I don't remember. I don't know if I actually was unconscious, but I, there's, there's gaps in what I remember. I was in the water, then I was in the boat. Um, and the Coast Guard came and they jumped across the boat and got oxygen on my face and that apparently saved me. Then I went to hospital. I had to drain lungs and... Go through that whole process. So that 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 happens during the swim. It's not a long. It's not a chronic long-term thing. It happened. No, in the, that happened the duration during the of swim. swim. It's the one and only time it's happened. But it rattles your confidence. Um, and you know, once the oxygen got in my brain, I realised that I haven't. I can't take that swim off. And you train hard for this stuff, and it's expensive. And um, and I, and, I, and I really wanted to get it. So I treat it as a failure. And the the reason I do the keynote on it, Patty, is that I didn't manage that failure well. I also preach quite loudly. We all know the memes that if you don't try, you've already failed and every successful entrepreneur has had more failures than he or she has had successes. And we all know that stuff. But what I didn't know, and I don't think many people know, is that failure does happen. It is part and parcel to real growth. But failure without introspection, without acknowledgement, 
without vulnerability attached to it, without taking the lessons from it, is just failure. It is the bad kind of failure. It is failure without the growth, and it's the failure that is bound to happen again. You know, when, when you fail, you, you have to re-strategize, you have to rethink, and you have to try again, richer with the learnings from that failure. And I came out of the North Channel and was so embarrassed and so upset and so everything that I did what humans do, I swept it under the carpet and I set the bigger goal in my head, what was a bigger goal, not necessarily a bigger goal in, in stature, but how it was in my head and that was false bay. I'm like, right, boom, what's next? I'll do this. Um, and the mismanagement of that failure held me at bay for a solid three years. For three years, I talked about that false bay swim I've just boasted about. For three years, I never found the starting line after setting everything up, after doing the hard work, after talking the hard game, after putting the teams in place, after waiting for the stars to align and the weather to be everything and right, let's go. I just couldn't find the starting line and I didn't know what was holding me back. And uh, eventually, three years later, through a very, very simple little comment that my sister manager, Jill Atwood, made, she just said, you know, we were in a business meeting and, and uh, three years later, she'd like, right, what's your plans? And I like, again, said false bay like I had been for three years. And she was like, Ryan, you know what? You really don't want this false bay, do you? And she was dead wrong because I know I definitely wanted it, but it just triggered something. Like, why? Why? I've done such tough swims. I've done swims that have pushed me to an inch of my life many times. Why am I so scared to stand on this line? And once I worked that back, I realized it all came from the North Channel failure that I had not processed. And once I started to really look at that, what was my role in that failure? It wasn't just the weather, it wasn't the support team, it wasn't just the lack of sleep, it wasn't all the things that I couldn't control. What could I control? And I found a whole list of what I could have done better. And I could take that whole list and I could apply it to within my mind and make sure I don't repeat those mistakes and it just immediately, like I'm talking the same day, gave me the confidence to phone up my support team and say, right, we're going to do false bay and I'm going to follow through with my uh, goal to do it the way no one succeeded before. Um, and, and I've really nutshelled stuff for you here, but that's the, the essence of it. I love that. So it's, it's processing failure. Failure is processing failure really well facing it, looking at it. It's the most tempting thing is to blame it on other people, things outside of my control, the weather, the conditions, the ocean, whatever it and might be. And we designed to do that. Yeah, and it's easy because it's nice and comfortable. The, that's the comfortable, that's the route, especially I found in the corporate space, the best hiding place in the world. It wasn't me, it was this, it was that, it was that. Support structures, this, this. Uh, there's a million excuses, but so few take it like, wow, what could I have done differently to actually have changed that? And what can I learn from it? I know it sounds like really basic, but the actual application, I didn't really realize until I went through the process I've just described. So, I mean, I can almost, I mean, it's a great example that you've given there of not managing failure well. So for that three years, you, you accept and you understand why that North Crossing didn't work and you feel okay about that because it was because of a whole lot of circumstances. But not really facing and taking full accountability for your own part in it has actually just been an anchor yeah. that has just held you held onto you land back. and prevented yep. you actually And can I, can I can I caveat yeah. that? Within those three years, I was performing. 
I was doing, I did, well, just, in, just in 2019, I did um, about 16 to 20 Robben Island crossings. That's 99.999% more than most open water swimmers will do in their entire lives. So I'm achieving, I swam the Bonifacio Straits from Italy to France. I, I did swim, so I'm talking a big game and everyone's applauding and like, wow. And, but when I look back, each and every swim I did was well within my comfort zone well within my comfort, it might look impressive to people outside, but I knew I could do these things. And um, so, so it doesn't mean I came to a grinding halt for three years. It was just pushing myself into that uncomfortable space between the two lines, the mind's endpoint and the real endpoint, dabbling there again and opening that door to potential failure. If I took on the false space swim, especially doing it in the direction I wanted to do it, uh, you know, where everyone was saying, don't be silly, that's, you know, just, do it the way everyone, you know, that you know it's going to work. Um, there's that fine line between, you know, stupidity and bravery. You know, if, you, if I'd failed, everyone would go, well, oh, well. You know, we told him. And uh, because I did it, everyone's gone like, wow, and Guinness, I've recognized it. And, you know, it's been a big thing. And, and a great accomplishment. I'm, I'm very proud of it. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I'm almost reflecting in my life where I've... where I've... <laughs> accomplish things that other people say is so cool and it's quite easy to I use it like it's you can bullshit other people and it looks good but exactly. actually you can't actually it's you, try, you use that to try and bullshit yourself but at the end of the road when you look in the mirror it's the one person you you can't it's easiest to bullshit but you can't actually bullshit is yourself and if you do it's just yeah. it's dropping an anchor there's putting in a ball and chain around your ankle and there's something I want to say to that but I'm, I'm hesitating um but I almost feel we're sharing so nicely here. So can I, oh, you know what, you're probably going to ask me at some stage what's next anyway. So let me, let me get there. Um, I, again, preach on the stage around the world the following, that if you are setting difficult goals or goals for yourself, but you know you can achieve those goals, you know if you do step A, B, and C, if you do the work, you can get to that goal. I argue that that's comfort zone stuff. Okay. It's when you set goals that you don't think you can achieve. That is when you are pushing yourself out of comfort. That's when you're opening the door to failure. That's where you've got to think a little harder, train a bit harder, and you might well succeed and you'll surprise yourself and it'll, it'll set you up for, for the next, it'll create a platform to launch yourself into the next bigger thing. Or you might fail and then you take those learnings and, and you re-strategize and, and you try again. So that's what I, that's it's something I believe in and I live by. So if I'm brutally honest, like you being honest with yourself internally there, <laughs> when I look at False Bay, it was a big goal and I was petrified of it. But I know, after doing English Channel and a lot of other swims, I knew that if the stars aligned, I'd make it. I can do it. So am I being real by saying that was a swim outside my comfort zone? Or am I saying that was a comfort zone swim? Okay, so that has been plaguing me in my head because I want to practice what I preach and I do. But in the terms of, of false bait, it was a great swim. It was a great accomplishment. It was hard. But um, I knew I could do it. What I don't know is whether I can turn around and swim back. And that's what I want to do. And that will push me so far outside any realm of comfort will push me way beyond what I think I'm capable of, certainly what I'm currently capable of. Um, it'll probably take me over the 24-hour mark of swimming, probably about 25 to 28 hours, all going well. 
which means I will swim overnight unprotected in False Bay for the whole night. That's unavoidable. Um, so can I be, and it's what, it's going to be about just short of 70 kilometers, probably just over 70 kilometers, unless you go in an absolutely perfectly straight line. So if I can, can I swim, can I have, get, can I have the mental strength to swim across False Bay, arrive on the other side, be absolutely exhausted, which I know I will be, and freezing cold and probably chafed and stung, do I have the mental fortitude to turn around and start swimming back, knowing that it's only the halfway mark? Probably going to be getting dark, depending on what time you start, and you might start in the dark and go to the light, but anyway, let's just assume we're now going back into the dark. Now I'm exhausted, physically exhausted, freezing cold, I've still got, um, hypothetically, I've still got 30 kilometers ahead of me. It's not dark. And I'm now swimming in False Bay with the great whites and the, 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 the mental issues that, that are happening below me. Can I keep it all together? That I don't know. So it's not just a, I know I can train to be fit enough to swim 70 Ks. It's the mental aspect that I don't know I can do. Um, and that fascinates me. It really does. So I'm not training for that now, so no one must ask me, have you done it yet? Um, because uh, something about me as well is that I need the right headspace to start the training. And right now, which I'm calling it the post-COVID era, I've got a deep hole of, of shit that I need to fix that is nicely on the route to be fixed, but I can't go and do the hours and hours and hours of training laps and ocean swims and investment that that takes when I've still got you know, issues that need to be fixed back home. I, I just, I can't allow myself that space. So once that is all fixed and I feel good about life again, hopefully next year, um, then I'll make a decision whether I want to take that on. Okay, but so you, now you don't have to ask me what's next. And, 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 and you've now put that out there. Yeah, I've put it out there. And anyone who's listening into this, and remembers this and sees Ryan walking around, just ask him about Don't ask nudging. me about it. Trust me, I'll tell you before you ask if I do it. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm going to finish with my one last question that I always ask, and you know what's coming. What is a very good question that I could ask you now? Are you happy? You can ask me that. Are you happy? And I'd like you to define happiness as well in the answer. Patty, I clearly, I mean, that, you know, when we first, when you first asked me would I be part of this, I thought, I know that question's coming up. And then I totally forgot to, to prep for it. But I think it's a good one to, to end on. And, and am I happy? I feel extremely happy. Um, and there are a lot of factors into that and I'm quite a, a I'm actually a very simple guy but the complexities that need to that I need to happen to make me happy and 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 one is definitely uh, my my home environment you know I've I've um I've I'm twice divorced as 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 you know which doesn't sit well with me at all. My, my first marriage was, was, was young and silly and, and no kids and I hardly counted, but on my CV it says twice divorced. My, my second marriage, um, I absolutely adore my, my ex-wife, uh, Nikki. We really get on well. Um, and we made a good decision to, to, to uh, divorce and co-parent our beautiful little son, Jesse. Um, however, it sits as a big failure for me and I've had relationships after that. And it's taken a long time to find someone who really makes me happy on a different level that I can go run with, that I can go and swim with, and then I can spend six hours lying on the couch 
watching Netflix with, and, and that's a huge part of, of my current happiness. Um, I have also transitioned out of a, a business that was treating me extremely well for many, many years, and I used to have a passion for and love, but became really difficult um, in, the, in the digital advertising age, and I wasn't geared for it, and I, I lost a passion for it. But when you're making really good money out of stuff, it's hard to, to say, I'm not passionate, let's close it down. Um, and the public speaking and inspirational speaking and coaching and helping people, I've, I've seen just, it's taken me eight years to really take it on board. When I chat to people, I've done three keynotes in the last uh, 48 hours, and the, the amount of people that I genuinely am able to help, and, and their kids involved there, and their CEOs involved there, and their presidents of companies, and their general employees, and everyone takes something out of, of what I'm able to share, the lessons that I'm able to put forward. And I'm finding a place where I think I'm articulating it quite nicely, and that feels really good to me, and I can feel that snowballing into something that I've got a passion for again. And I'm, you know, I've just back from three weeks in the States doing keynotes. And you know, when you're a, a little no-name brand sitting in Cape Town to get on some big stages in the States, it's very difficult. And uh, I've certainly got a lot of work to do before that becomes the norm, but I'm getting them. I'm pinging on some big radars and um, I'm feeling valuable again. I've gone through, a, you know, the COVID period was hard when suddenly, you know, you, you're literally wondering how you're going to put food on the table. You know, you, you're starting to put houses and things on the market to, to make ends meet. And it's, it's brutally difficult. And I know a lot of your listeners will relate to that. I'm hardly alone. But I've come out of that space and I'm in the headspace of 100% um, belief that no matter what this world throws at me, I will come out on top. And that's not arrogance, that is just through a, a, a positive attitude and uh, not chasing the light at the end of the tunnel and an understanding of what happens to us inside our heads when, when the going gets really tough. Sure, lovely answer. So your book is out, you, you published it, <coughs> launched it about two months ago, Pushed Past Impossible, it's out there on the shelves. Um, you're out there, you're available to go and do talks and, and speak to people. Um, you're still going to be doing some swimming. And hopefully, you know, from, the, from what you shared today, you know, the, the formula for success is there's a lot of complexity, but it's also relatively simple. And again, through your story, you know, around picking something that, that you're really drawn to and finding a reason to do it and then doing your preparation and being physically ready and having the right team around you and jumping in in the dark and knowing you'll swim through jellyfish and you'll feel like shit and your mind will want you to give up and it's knowing that that's not a problem, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, you start thinking negatively, it's not a problem but that you can't think positively. It's just, are you managing life smartly or life's never going to be a better rose. So the formula that you've spoken through it and the beautiful thing is you, as you say, you, you're Joe Average at the age of 29 years old, overweight, sitting on a couch, not doing a whole lot other than running a relatively successful business, which is such a limited view or version of success as being financially and successful. And then you've gone and actually walked and lived your message, lived the knowledge you're sharing. Um, and I can only imagine that, you know, people listened and I remember listening to you a couple of years ago sharing a stage going, wow, this 
it's an amazing story, an amazing example of you actually lived this stuff and now you're sharing it. And it's awesome that you got to share it with us, with me today and with our listeners. Thank you very much. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks for letting me share it. Thanks for letting me go on about my story. It's such nice, it's so nice having such a long podcast where you can actually get into some, some real stuff. So thanks, Betty. And uh, you know, for all your other podcasts that I've listened to, the amazing people you've had on, can't believe I'm sitting in this couch. It's, it's a real accolade for me. So thank you for that. And thanks for, for taking the time to do it. And I mean, I, you, you do this all out of the love. It's your give back. And it's a lot of time and effort that goes into it. And I have taken something so special away from each and every one of the podcasts and I've listened to each and every one of your podcasts so thanks very much to you awesome thank you in briefly wrapping up what I love most about Ryan's story was his starting point as an unfit overweight average Joe at the age of 29 and one without any special physical or mental talent for swimming Hopefully you found this episode an entertaining listen and have been able to extract lessons for whatever your challenge or challenges might be. For me, it included not buying into that negative thinking or listening too closely to my mind's early false alarms. Personally, I'm going to dig deeper and push longer whenever I hit my proverbial rough oceans or fields of blue bottles. And I know they're going to happen. A big thank you to Ryan, and as always, a big thank you to you, the listener, for offering your valuable time to listen in. And for those who have already liked, left a comment, or shared with mates in the past, a big thank you for sharing the love. That's it from me, Paddy Upton. See you in two weeks' time for the next episode of Lessons from the World's Best.